No, so much for playing for us today. Well, June's away. Thank you so much. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. The 10th chapter of Hebrews. As we continue through, I'm, I know it says in the bullet, I'm going down to verse 25. I'm actually only going down to verse 18 today. I gave June incorrect information for the bulletin, which wasn't intentional, but now it's ironic because I wanted to start the sermon with that old familiar saying, well, nobody's perfect. Right? How, how many times have we um, heard or said that phrase in our lives? Right? Somebody makes a mistake, does something wrong, does something embarrassing, and we say, well, nobody's perfect. Saying nobody's perfect is meant to get us off the hook for being undeniably flawed somehow. It's an attempt at self-justification, right? I'm not perfect, but who is? So perfect isn't our standard because nobody's perfect. That's the explanation for our flawed behavior. We, we all know, nobody disputes that. We all know that we're not perfect, but we do believe that we're better than we actually are. We, we, we say that phrase to excuse our own behavior by making the standard too high for anyone to meet it. Everybody's off the hook if nobody's perfect. So I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you are, or I'm better than other people are. But the one true and living God who is holy only accepts perfect. Perfect. No exception. So now what? Nobody's perfect is a pronouncement of condemnation for anyone and for everyone to whom it applies. It's, it's not just inconvenient that we aren't perfect. It's a death sentence. And our desire to be better than we are is one we inevitably learn throughout our lives that we are insufficient to accomplish. Our imperfection haunts us with its realities and its accusations. So what do we do? We can keep trying to become perfect, which again means really just trying to do as good as we can, or we can throw up our hands and beg for mercy. God has responded to our imperfection and God has responded to our efforts to become perfect. What is God's response to this. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would overshadow me completely this morning so that what I say may bring you glory and be of help and comfort and hope to everyone in this room. Please help me to speak the truth. Please help everyone to listen and believe. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first four verses to begin with of Hebrews chapter 10. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We want to take careful notice any time, talked about this before, any time we see a sentence or paragraph in the Bible begin with the word for. It means we have to connect what came before it with what we're about to read in order to understand it correctly. We found out at the end of chapter 9 that Jesus Christ entered into heaven itself to appear before the presence of God on behalf of his people once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what this whole last chapter was about. The sufficiency of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ to actually forgive sins. Now, the argument for that is going to continue in chapter 10, but he's going to add another dimension to it. In chapter 9, the aspect of the sacrifice of Jesus the text focused on was its sufficiency to actually forgive sins and give believers in Christ a clean conscience. In other words, we do not have the right or the need to feel ongoing guilt for forgiven sins in light of how perfect the sacrifice of Jesus was to wash them away. Believers should have clean consciences that enable us to worship God in spirit and in truth as he desires. That is, without fear, without hesitation. Under the old covenant sacrificial system, all that was happening really was that their outward flesh was being ceremonially purified in the eyes of God so that they could perform these rites. Sins were not actually being forgiven, which meant no matter how many times you did that, consciences were not actually being clean, which left people, as we find by God, was intended outside the presence of God and separated from him. There was no closeness, which meant there was no true worship. It was all dead works in 914 that didn't actually address the sin problem at all. The author continues to talk about that here in chapter 10. Since the law had but a shadow of the good things to come, this new covenant where our sins are forgiven and we can come close to God, since the law had only a shadow of that, it can never make perfect those who draw near to God. Keep that word in your head as we go through this text perfect because that's the aspect of the sacrifice of jesus the text will focus on in chapter 10 the old covenant sacrifices were offered continually year after year and the fact that the sacrifices under the old covenant had to be repeated year after year meant that sins were not being forgiven people under that covenantal system were not being made perfect otherwise as he says in verse 2 they would have stopped offering the sacrifices. If those sacrifices provided remission of sins, they would have stopped because where there is the remission of sins, this is crucial for you and I. Where there is the forgiveness of sins, in verse 2, there should no longer be even the consciousness of them in the heart of a worshiper. In verse 3, continuing sacrifices are a continuing reminder of sins. They feed the consciousness of sin. Every time a sacrifice was offered, it meant I'm not clean yet. I'm not perfect. I can't get close to God. Why? Again, in verse 4, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Beloved, God does not intend for those who have actually been forgiven of their sins to carry around forever this sense that they're still guilty, still dirty, still not enough, 
We're not meant to think, my sins are forgiven, yes, but I'm not good enough to stand in God's presence yet. I have to get there. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word over you and I than that. The old covenant sacrifice is reminded of sin. The sacrifice of Jesus is meant to wash the memory of sins away. Where sins have not been removed, our consciences are hopelessly guilty. But where sins have been removed, the conscience, by God's decree, is forever clean. And the one who has been forgiven is forever perfect. The author is continuing to highlight the qualitative difference between the blood of bulls and goats and the blood of Jesus. And that is the difference between two separate covenants. To actually forgive sins and therefore cleanse the conscience and make us perfect. The old way, the old covenant sacrificial system and the law that was the essence of it could not do that. But the new way, ushered in by Jesus Christ, can and has done that for all who believe. Look at the text. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So as a consequence of the fact in verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, that old system of the law to take away sins, when Jesus finally came into our world, he said, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 here in verses 5 through 7, as the consequential fulfillment of all Scripture, including the Psalms, meaning that because of these things, because this covenant was insufficient to forgive sins and bring people close to God, as a consequence of that, Jesus came into the world saying, literally, with his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. All that time, no pleasure. Then I said, behold, this is Jesus speaking. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. God took no pleasure in a system that didn't actually forgive his people's sins or bring them close to him. God didn't institute the old covenant because he takes pleasure in keeping people guilty, feeling guilty, and held at arm's length. God instituted that system as the means of revealing to people what we could not see for ourselves. We are so lost and wicked and dead in the water from our conception to the grave that if God is not the one that offers the sacrifice for sins and provides for himself what he requires from humanity, there will be no forgiveness, no salvation, no eternal life. There will only ever be guilt, imperfection, at best, shame, and death. God didn't desire bulls and goats. Just He's not some tribal deity that just wants just more sacrifices, more rites, more ceremonies. He didn't desire that, so he prepared a human body for his son to walk among us in. And this son, the one with whom he is pleased, loved his father. So he said to the father, I came to this world to do your will as it was written of me in your book. That is, I came to fulfill this prophecy 
by becoming the sacrifice to you from earth that you will accept to redeem this race from their sin. Jesus did that because the old way didn't. Right? Look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. That last sentence tells us explicitly what Jesus was doing by dying since the old covenant system didn't work. What was he doing? He was doing away with that system in order to establish a new system. Beloved, one covenant, its law and its sacrifices, has been done away with so that, and this is the will of God, it was all along, in order to establish a second. So Jesus came to deliberately, this was in the design, put an end to the system that didn't forgive and didn't clean the conscience by making us perfect. He came by God's will to end one covenant, not be passive towards it, to end one covenant and begin another. The the words, think of what the author has been doing. The words used up to this point in Hebrews to describe what God has done to the old covenant through Christ include it being made obsolete, old, ready to vanish away, done away with how passionate God the Holy Spirit is through the author of Hebrews to tell us he has actually forgiven our sins and wants our consciences to be clean because we are perfect. But it begs the question at this point, doesn't it? How many chapters has he been making the exact same argument? It begs the question, why keep belaboring this point to this audience? Because when the Bible does that, it belabors the point to us. It certainly feels that way or can feel that way. Why does he keep doing this? Why is it detail upon detail upon detail? And what seems like just repetition? Because, beloved, we don't fully believe the gospel. No, 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 no. We, we, we don't believe with all our hearts that every ounce of this message is true. Christians don't act like people with clean consciences that are free and they're going to spend eternal life with Jesus. We act like people that now know you're supposed to be perfect and so we're all scrambling to try and be as good as we can, right? That, that, that's, really, when, that's really what's happening. Our consciences remain dirty, not because... God is standing over us, wagging his finger and nagging us about our remaining imperfection. We translate that as piety, that we feel this constant need to do better. We think that's a sign of the Spirit in us. Look at the text. God is not the one laying shame and guilt on us, it's not Him. We don't actually believe our sins have been forgiven and we don't actually believe that we're perfect because we think perfection has something to do with what we do or don't do. Which may make us feel like we must, we're okay because we actually care about our sins. We take our sins seriously. But what it reveals 
and is fatal if we persist in it is that we don't take God seriously enough. We don't take God at his final word that he has spoken once and for all in his son, Jesus Christ. Again, these believers he's writing to are thinking that to secure their salvation and gain the assurance and perfection they were lacking because they weren't changing at the rate they thought they should be because they were still suffering in this world. And how can you suffer? If you have God's approval, why are you suffering, right? What did I do wrong? It's narcissistic and neurotic. They're thinking because of those things, they have to do something to get better. They have to do something to feel justified and feel like they've been approved by God. So what was the answer? Let's go back to the law. It's always the answer. We should be offering sacrifices all the time, keeping the law, working. And God has graciously told us in this letter, which is no coincidence, that his word is living and powerful, meaning the warnings here still stand for us because you and I are exactly the same as they were. We feel the same pull back to the law, back to this idea that We need to put something on the table. We need to give our sacrifices of good behavior. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice, is just to do as much as you can with your life, apparently. But by our sacrifices of good behavior and commitment and discipline and purity and all these things. But God calls our bluff in the book of Hebrews. We don't have that passion to do well mainly I think because we want to honor God and praise him for saving us we have that passion mainly because we don't actually believe that we're saved unless we do enough no matter how often we hear the gospel that's why people get so edgy when you start pushing pure grace and people feel this inherent need to you know pull it rein it in rein in the grace careful with grace God was being super irresponsible when he said he'd save by grace apart from works. Because now people might think they don't have to work for it. So we have to make up for his shortcomings and make sure people stay on the good and narrow if they're going to get to heaven. Sounds insane when you say it, doesn't it? It's interesting. Jesus, Tony, Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Seems to me like we should be taking our sins very seriously, really. Why do any of you have still have eyes and hands? Right? We, we, we use this as ammo. Well, you're supposed to, the Bible says, cut out your eye and pluck out your eye and cut off your arm. Then why do you still have them? You're going to listen to Jesus or not? Jesus is calling our bluff. Right? You see, you see what we do with the law? Well, I can't do that, but I can make it sound like I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that really seriously, right? No, I'm not going to actually cut out my, plug out my eye and cut off my hand because what good does it do to go down into hell with your hands and your eyes? Everybody's still got hands and eyes, gang. So we're not taking it seriously. We're not actually doing it. Call the bluff on that. You're supposed to be taking, well, how serious are you? Are you actually going to do it? No. Well, then maybe we need more than cutting off our hands and plucking out our eyes because we would still be sinners, with no hands and no eyes. The only way you you, you want to rip out your heart, well, then you die. Because the problem is here. 
It isn't here. It isn't here. It's here. Jesus comes to crush the idea that by being more committed to discipline, you can be righteous. No, you have to be perfect. Perfect. Do you know when we blew it? Conception. We were done before we came out. That's what Jesus came to address. God is not honored when we give lip service to obedience with our religious words and commitments and platitudes. He's honored when we just collapse imperfect and guilty onto his son and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Because if you work for it, you end up saying, Jesus, what what do you want me to do for you? Well, uh, really, I'd like one son to sit on your left and one son to sit on your right. And then there's the other guy, the blind guy with nothing. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's who you want to be. That's who I want to be. Because by the will of God that Jesus came to do in verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Beloved, that's the fourth time since chapter 7 the author has used that phrase to describe the sacrifice of Jesus. Once for all. He offered it up once in contrast to it being offered up like the old covenant ones every year for all, which means his sacrifice completely covered all the sins, past, present, and future of all who believe on him. This was God's will that Jesus became God in human flesh to carry out. God's will to fully forgive and fully cleanse his people. And that will sanctified us past tense At the very least, that means we have to address this idea at some point we have that we're sanctified progressively through our works. That God accomplishes our salvation, but we accomplish through good works our sanctification. No, God accomplishes both for us through Christ or we have nothing. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Again, the contrast. One of these sacrificial systems is insufficient to accomplish God's will, to forgive all of his people's sins, perfect them, and therefore give them a clean conscience. One of these systems cannot do that. The will he revealed he had in Psalm 40. Look at 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered... For all time, all time, past, present, future, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We read that in chapter 1. All along, this book has been to proclaim to us the supremacy of Jesus, not just as the Son of God and Lord and King and ruler of the earth, but as Savior and High Priest. Jesus has been seated since he returned to his Father's right hand, as far as I know, except for when he stood to welcome Stephen into heaven. The point is that when Jesus' sacrifice had been offered up, Jesus was done working to cover those under his covenant. In other words, his people have everything they need by his sacrifice before you and I were ever born 
to be accepted by God. That's why the author keeps making the point that Jesus is sitting. He's waiting. His work is so finished, so completed, so perfect, that the Son of God has his feet up while his Father moves every atom in creation to rest submissively, eternally, under his Son's feet. Because, I mean, what did the Son do that made him so great in our redemption? For, here's why he's sitting, here's why he's waiting, for, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise God for verb tenses. The gospel is revealed in them. Verse 14 is the climax. It's the big crescendo of something Hebrews has been talking about since chapter 2. Break this sentence down, not just for the sermon, but for your souls. My soul, by a single offering, his sacrifice at the cross, he, Jesus, in 915, the mediator of a new covenant, was dying for us at the cross, has perfected, it's already done, for all time, it will last forever. Read that again in your heart. Read it out loud whenever you doubt. By his once for all sacrifice at the cross, Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, nobody's perfect. Oh, beloved. Billions are perfect. Their perfection just doesn't have anything to do with their behavior. They didn't attain it. They didn't work for it or work their way into it. They had it credited to them through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. And they will be perfect for all time because of that. To be perfected forever means I will never again be imperfect. So whoever has this can't lose it. So why are we still trying to placate God with our works? Why do we think of works as a means of becoming perfect? Why do we think that by our performance we can impress God or get him to move a little closer to us as some sort of recognition that would become the basis of our assurance? We're looking for something that has already been provided. We are in some way still being sanctified. Yes, as God conforms us to the image of his son, but we are also considered by God positionally forever to already be perfect. Beloved, the difference that needs to be clear in our minds is that yes, I am presently being sanctified, but Jesus is doing it through his sacrifice at the cross. I am not doing it through my progressive works. He is doing it through his one-time work. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, God, you, believer, are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification. He became to us that righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that our boast will always only ever be in him, in the Lord. 
There will be nothing for you and I to boast about. Nothing. Our failures and shortcomings will not prevent our sanctification. As in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, our sanctification is the will of God. A will that has sanctified here in verse 10. Don't I, don't I need to be sanctified? You have been and you will be, but because of his perfection, not ours. For by a single sacrifice, again, his, not ours, Jesus, not me, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you just comprehend the weight of those verb tenses? Has perfected being sanctified. What isn't done yet is done. That's the way God works in Christ. The author is talking to believers. That's who's being sanctified. All the people under this new covenant. They are the ones in this world being set apart, sanctified to God. So my sanctification is not me moving closer and closer over time to perfection. Right? Jesus didn't die so that nobody ever actually got sanctified. They just have to die. Imperfect, technically. That's not what his sacrifice did. It didn't pay 99% of the bill. And it didn't address our, didn't just address our commission of sins, but our omission of righteousness. The cross addresses both. That's what Hebrews is laboring to show. I become perfect. I became perfect through the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ for me. My sanctification then is what God is doing to me because I am perfect. This is not a call then to become as perfect as you can, to do your best. We see that. We just, we just talk, well, we want to do our best for the Lord. Okay, do we don't want to pay lip service to it. Do we want to honor and glorify God with our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. But do we think that by our works, if, if beloved, if, if God took no pleasure in a system of constant, bloody sacrifices and rites, what makes us think that he's up there going, oh, you haven't cussed in six days. Wow. Right? You, now, I, I, know it's, I know it doesn't make you want to pat yourself on the back. Yeah. Right? I mean, let's think, think about the distance between heaven and earth. Right? It, does, it, does that, well, then I can talk however I want. It doesn't matter. No. The point is, beloved, where the rubber meets the road, you and I will do what we want to do. We need a Savior for who we are, not just to clean up our behavior. My sanctification is what happens to me because God has made me perfect. Again, this isn't a call now. Okay, then I better be perfect. Why would we take that from this text? Because what are we going to say? Well, nobody's perfect. So, I mean, I I can work as hard as I can to get somewhere close to this standard, but 
That's how we interpret that because we're just bent on working our way in through our works. So what you, you, that, then you drop the standard. You dumb down perfection to really good or tried really hard. And now we're demeaning the holiness of God that we say we're trying to honor by taking it more seriously than other people who just believe in grace. The standard is absolute perfection. If, if, if Israel couldn't do it under the law, we aren't going to do it. We need a substitute. Through what this message is to keep us from drifting away from this message of great salvation. Remember, that's where Hebrews started in 2, 1 through 3. So everything that follows here is so that we won't stop believing the message of great salvation. Through what Jesus did for us at the cross, which here is made us perfect. Through that, God is setting us apart to himself every moment of every day. Who, who, who is the subject of the verbs here? Who does the perfecting? Jesus. What is doing the sanctifying? His sacrifice. Where am I in this text? I'm benefiting from all of it. For all time. I'm not doing anything here. Something is being done to me and for me through which I am free now to worship him as he desires. Every other system doesn't make you clean enough to worship without a guilty conscience. Jesus does. That's what God is after. One covenant didn't give it. The other does. That's why it is the way it is. Our good works aren't sanctifying us. He's been building on this the whole letter. 2.11 For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. God the Father. Not me, not you, not us. Beloved, the point here is that every single millimeter of what was necessary for sinners to be forgiven of all their sins washed completely clean and become so perfect that they might now enter into the very presence of God and worship Him for all time has been completely accomplished by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our High Priest, Nothing can be added to the cross of Christ to save people or to sanctify people. And God the Father didn't just give Jesus the Son a human body to do His will. God the Holy Spirit spoke in Scripture to reveal that this was God's will. Look at verse 16. Or I'm sorry, 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying the same thing. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The scriptures are the very words of God, the Holy Spirit, spoken to us. Praise God for his written word. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to the fact that verse 14 is true about what Jesus has done. Because after he said, Jeremiah 31, 33, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Still building on his argument from chapter 8. Then he added, the Holy Spirit added in verse 17, which is Jeremiah 31, 34. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The Holy Spirit was 
testifying through the scripture about this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, precisely what verse 14 says. One day God will, and now he has, make a new covenant with his people, who now we know are all those of faith, the true seed of Abraham, because they're in Christ. He will make a new covenant with his people through which instead of requiring the people under it to obey the law, he will put the law on our hearts, write them on our minds, therefore, thereby doing all that is necessary in Jeremiah 31 to make us his people and make him our God. But then he also promises in this new covenant that he will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. So through the new covenant ratified, mediated by Jesus Christ, he perfects us so that it is as if we have always obeyed him and he will no longer hold our actual disobedience against us. That's what has happened. This modifies verse 14. That's its purpose. By the single sacrifice of Jesus, he has perfected. That's what happens when he put his law, wrote, put it in our hearts, wrote it on our minds. He has perfected for all time those who had broken his law and still do and sanctifies them to himself forever. For when they break faith with the covenant. Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, our sins and lawless deeds, in verse 17. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's the climax of the author's entire teaching about Jesus Christ being our high priest that began all the way back in 217. It's all been working to chapter 10, verse 18. This is what the author wants the people to know. That where there is forgiveness of sins, no offering remains to be made for it. None. Where sins have actually been forgiven by what he has described, a sufficient, faithful, eternal, merciful, indestructible high priest, where sacrifice for sins, where provision for sins has been made by that, there is no longer any offering that needs to be made for sin, namely our offerings of effort and good works and obedience. Those things are not atoning for our sin, sanctifying us, justifying us. Jesus has done all of that. That is not what the good works of a Christian are. The good works of a believer are the fruit of being perfect and accepted and forgiven and clean. They're meant to come from freedom. They're meant to come from rest, not work. Yes, believers of God will do good works. Every one of them has the Holy Spirit producing his fruit in their lives. But good works do not, cannot, and will not ever be used to atone for sin or sanctify. Nor were they ever intended to tell us how we're doing. If you look to your list and the empty boxes that aren't checked yet as the source of your assurance and acceptance, you will become one of two things. A Pharisee who's a reprobate or a reprobate. Will never be what makes a person perfect enough 
to stand accepted, forgiven, and clean before God, no matter what kind or how often we do them. And this isn't just semantics. If it was simply a matter of saying, just make sure you work it in there. Well, yes, you're saved by grace, absolutely. I believe all that, the cross. I believe all that stuff. But, really, you still have to do good works. Everybody knows that. This is weird, then. That's a lot of space to take up to say what you could have said in one sentence that apparently, you know, everybody gets it anyway. It's precisely, here's the, the hard message of Hebrews. It's, it's precisely because when we say things like that, we are revealing that we believe good works are really what determines whether or not a person is saved. Grace is in the rearview mirror. That's to get you in. That's for the beginning. That's why it feels so, so strange to push the gospel when, the church is, when our church is mainly a bunch of professing believers. Why is that strange? Why would that, right? You ever, why would that be strange? Man, we preach the gospel in there every Sunday. I hope or you should fire me. Absolutely. I, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's Paul. What do we do? Well, he doesn't mean nothing. No, he, he does. He does. He, he, he meant what he said. And I'm no Paul. (laughs) It's not what I meant. Hebrews gives warnings to people who insist on emphasizing works as the evidence of salvation. Because that's what they're doing. They're They're not in danger of apostatizing into like Buddhism or paganism. That's not their problem. What are they doing? Why 13 chapters? Why the detail? Why the ongoing explanation to believers? What are they thinking of doing? What, what's, the, what's the emergency? Are they going to watch bad movies? Or are they going to start listening to bad music? Are they, are they going to become pagans who worship Molech? No, no, no. They want to go back to the old covenant law. That's what they're doing. That's the emergency. Why is that an emergency? That's the word of God. It absolutely is. So why is it an emergency? It can't be that bad, right? I mean, there are worse things you could fall into. Oh, no, everything, according to Galatians, is the same now that Jesus has come. It's him or it's death. One word stands out uniquely in this section. These last few, one word might be the center of the whole thing. And, And that this helps us understand the point that's being pressed here. It helps us understand what we need to be getting here. Look, look back with me for a moment at chapter 7, verse 11. Okay, look at seven eleven. Now, if perfection had been attainable, there it is. What, what, what's the issue? Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, the assumption in those parentheses is, that would have made you perfect, right? If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So the law and the priesthood attached to it were insufficient to provide perfection. Look at 7, 18, and 19. For on the one hand, 
a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law cannot sanctify. That is, it it can't make anything perfect. That's what's keeping people at a distance. No matter how much they do, they aren't becoming perfect. They're not getting close to being able to stand in the presence of God. You have to be perfect to stand there. Look at 9, the second part of verse 9 in chapter 9. According to this arrangement, this old system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The old covenant sacrificial system, which is holier than any system of morality human beings could ever come up with, and it would, it's the, the law is the word of God. It is holy and righteous and good. What standard are we going to come up with that's going to trump that and actually, Lord, you should have sent this system, my system, through it people do become perfect. The old covenant sacrificial system could not forgive sins and it could not perfect the conscience. 10.1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, work as hard as you want, make perfect those who draw near. The one true and living God who is holy requires perfection in those who draw near to him. We cannot ever draw near to God by lessening the blow or loosing the demands of the law so that we can keep as many of them as we possibly can as some kind of arrangement with God through which he says to us, well, you did better than others. You can come close. The law is a package deal. It can't be divided. You keep all of it, every single one, you live. You keep all of them, break a few, or break even just one, you die. That is the standard. God, why is that the standard? Because God is holy. The only way to be close to him without being obliterated is to be perfect. See, everybody's in the same boat. It doesn't matter what our story is. The church should be the one place on earth where everybody realizes we're not better than anybody The problem of humanity is not that we just fall a little bit short of the standard sometimes and are in need of some assistance, some instructions, some law. You see why God gave it now? To show this to us. The problem since the fall in the Garden of Eden is that one slip-up, one act of disobedience completely and utterly casts us far away from Him, out of His presence, disqualifies us to be in His rest One act of disobedience from Adam, not standing in the place of his wife. Because the only acceptable state to dwell in God's presence forever is absolute perfection. We we are not condemned because we don't do enough good to outweigh the bad. That's not why we stand condemned. We're not condemned because we just didn't quite reach our potential. We aren't condemned because our intentions were good, but our actions just didn't measure up. We're condemned because the requirement has never been, try your best. The requirement is, be perfect to be close to me, or you will die. Which means it doesn't ultimately matter if you've killed 50 people or no people. 
if you don't drink or smoke or chew or date girls who do. It doesn't matter if your record is one that brings you shame and embarrassment and guilt and haunts you at every step. Or if you've actually been pretty good, pretty decent. If we aren't perfect, we rot for all eternity. Because God is perfect. Nobody's perfect. Doesn't get anybody off the hook. It's human beings finally admitting the problem. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. You were condemned after the third word. Everyone in this room needs Jesus Christ. It literally doesn't matter who you are. For the one true and living God who is holy, obviously in Hebrews, requires perfection in those who draw near to him. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected. You see how 14 takes all of that says, this was the problem. This is the solution. By a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is one way to be reconciled to God. One way to be forgiven. One way to be perfect. One way to have the curse broken and given eternal life. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior because of what he did at the cross for anyone and everyone who will. That is the message for the unbeliever in the room this morning. That is the message for the believer in the room this morning. Unbelieving person, believe on Jesus. Believing person, keep believing on Jesus. He will be as much of our salvation on day one of our walk as he will be on day 50 million of our walk with him. Beloved, it's his sacrifice that makes all the necessary covering for all of our sin. It's his one-time sacrifice that makes us perfect and sets us apart every day to God. His sacrifice, his perfection, not ours, not for one second. Jesus does all of it or Jesus does none of it. He will do everything for you or he will do nothing for you. Some of us have rejected Jesus our whole lives up to this moment. Repent of your sins and your rebellion and your unbelief and come home to Jesus. Provision has been made for you, so come. Some of us do believe in Jesus and struggle almost every day to have assurance, to get closer to perfect. Repent of your unbelief in God's word and come home to Jesus. It is finished. It is finished. We're going to sing. I'll be down front. If anyone needs to come and pray, if you've believed on Jesus, you know you need him while we're sitting here, you can come and tell me. The next step is to be baptized and show through water what Christ has done for you. If you want to be baptized because you believed on Jesus already and you haven't been yet, please come. If you want to join our church and be a part of this, please come. But the front is open. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you because you first loved us this morning. I pray for everyone in the room to have the gift of the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
more than welcome. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us today. Lord, may those who believe on you go in your grace and in your peace, and may those who don't go with you hot on their trail to save them and bring them. Watch over everyone in this room and their families in the week to come. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.